You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to be reading verse 29 through 31 together. This will be kind of the anchor in what we talk about today. Isaiah 29 to 31, and and it says, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God, this is your word, and we um, hold it with just the, the highest importance today, Father, and believe, Lord, that this is uh, your living words for us today, though they were spoken through the prophet Isaiah thousands of years ago, Lord God, they are for us today, Lord, so would we receive from you what you have for us in your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, For all of this year, 2014, we have been walking through um, these different series about health and maturity. Um, At the turn of the year, uh, we really felt as a staff there was an opportunity. uh, Our church was four years old now, and so it was was important for us to talk about how we live out a healthy walk with the Lord in this city of San Francisco, how we grow healthy in knowing who we are in Christ, and and how we grow mature in the way that God has created us to walk and live with him. Uh, So we started the year off in this series we called Emo Church, all about identifying our emotions, uh, that, that our emotions can be uh, like the, um, the lights on the dashboard of our car. They indicate to us things that are wrong or, or good or how fast we're going, all those things. They're indicators. That was important for us, and it gave us a language to, to be able to invite the Lord into places of grieving, uh, places of joy, uh, to, to be able to talk with each other, and, and it opened up some deep caverns of our heart. Uh, that we could submit to the Lord together. And it was very good. It was good for the health of our church, for us to grow in that. And then uh, we just finished last week a series in Proverbs about wisdom, how to be, uh, how to be wise and live the good life uh, the way God defines that. And, uh, and what we learned is, is that wisdom is found in the Lord, and it's like a canopy that covers every area of our life. Uh, in our work, in our family, in our sexuality, in our finances, everything. The wisdom of the Lord covers it. So we need to grow in that and walk in that. And it's been so, so good for us this year, thus far, to grow in these areas of health and maturity. And last week, uh, Dave Lomas closed the Proverbs series talking about a healthy fear of the Lord, that we are to fear the Lord, that that's actually the beginning of wisdom, And it's good for us, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. This year has been so good, so important for the growth and maturity of our church. 
Though we're still in the early stages, right? We're not even five years old. We're still in the early stages, but we're learning. Praise God for all that he's done to this point. So as pastors, um, this week we were praying and uh, asking the Lord, where, where do we go next? What's, what do you have for us this summer? And there's this real sense that God was inviting us, uh, even calling us, to remember our fervor, to remember our passion in the Lord. In, in Revelation chapter 3, there, there's, uh, or chapter 2, there's a word that goes out to the church in Ephesus saying, uh, you've forsaken your first love, that thing that you first fell in love with, your, your passion for the Lord. And I think back to where this church started. <laughs> uh, and I mean, there's a lot of funny things about the way the church started, but the, the zealousness, the passion, the excitement that God was doing something. And, uh, and I look at where we're at now, and it would be so easy to just sit back, say, okay, here we are. I think we got it figured out now. And that's, that's dangerous, and we don't ever want to be a church that lives in that. Amen? Are you with me? He is. Okay. So we're going to talk about this today, how we, how we do this how we walk out and live zealously for the Lord. Maybe you can learn from that and like embrace it. Um, so there's a danger for us as a church, and this is, this is what I think the Lord was kind of stirring. There's a danger for us as a church to know much about God and not to know God in intimacy, to, to be near God in the personhood of God. Especially in a place like San Francisco. Uh, you guys are so well-educated, and you're so good at what you do and what you study, and those things are really held in high esteem, and yet maybe there is a call for us to throw some of the paprika into our recipe of how we walk with the Lord and liven it a bit. So I had something totally different and totally uh, separate that I was preparing to study for. And then this week, God just kind of threw me a curveball, which is never fun uh, for me. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. Um, we want to talk about zeal, zeal and passion. Now, I want to start by saying when we, we use those words, they can be misconstrued, definitely in the church, but in the world in general. When I say things like, let's be passionate for the Lord, let's be zealous, something like this may, may come to mind, all right? Uh, World Cup fever is taking over right now, okay? And um, all over the globe, uh, when Brazil scores a goal in Brazil, in the World Cup, uh, mayhem kind of takes over. And it doesn't matter how old you are, what ethnicity you are, it's just, it's just chaos. Uh, I mean, people are, you wouldn't, they don't do this on a normal day, I don't think. Maybe Rafiq, they do a little bit? Okay, all right. So Brazilians are just crazy. But uh, the craziness ramps, ramps up a little bit, all right? And it's not just fans. I mean, the players uh, get into this, right? Um, it's just, ah, like this zeal and passion and everything. They're karate chopping the corner uh, sticks, right? They're just, uh, after they score a goal, like they're doing crazy, silly things. Even babies are getting pulled into this, uh, this stuff, Okay. That's not the zeal I'm talking about. <laughs> it's good zeal. It's a fun zeal. Um, that's one kind of zeal. What we want to talk about today is having a fervor and a passion held in hand with maturity and wisdom. Uh, what that actually looks like to, to have zeal and passion and maturity and wisdom held together 
in the Lord. No more, no less of either. So, so what can we do with this? What does it look like? I want to tell you a story. Dave Lomas is the preacher. I'm the storyteller. I want to tell you a story uh, about a man named David in the Bible. A man that said uh, was a man after God's own heart and who reached a level of maturity in his journey with the Lord that was so good and so rich. But it also got him in trouble. Some background. Uh, Israel was uh, the nation, uh, a people group really. They weren't even a nation yet. When God said, these are my chosen people and through them I will teach the world who I am, how I love and my plan to rescue the world. That was God's plan for Israel. And so he brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery. They wander through the desert uh, for a very long time until they come to the promised land that God had promised them to have. And they go into it and they begin to prosper and they begin to raise their families and grow as a nation. And then they say to, to Samuel, the prophet, we want a king. Like every other nation, give us a king. And so God gives them their wish, and he appoints a man named Saul to be the king over Israel. And it isn't very long in this journey before Saul just completely disobeys God. And it says that, that the Lord was no longer with him, and, and God made a plan for a successor. He told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. And he goes to the house, and there are seven sons there with Jesse, all handsome and athletic and uh, look just like what a king should be. And God says, none of them. There's one more. And they bring the youngest one, David, out from the field, tending sheep. They bring him into the house, and as soon as he walks in, God tells Samuel, this is the one. Because of his heart, because of his heart, this is the one. And Samuel anoints David to be the next king. And then he goes on his way. And Saul is still, still the current king. And, and this begins a journey for David, walking with the Lord. David... Um, it's 13 to 15 years old, somewhere in there when he's anointed to be king. And right after that, uh, he goes out to the battle lines, uh, the front lines where the, the Israelite army is faced up against the Philistines, their arch rival, who have this great champion, Goliath. And, and the Israelite army is terrified. And David shows up, bringing lunch for his older brothers. And he says, what's going on here? There's a man standing in that valley who is mocking the Lord, who is just uh, using foul language toward our God. Who's going to do something? Shouldn't someone do something about this? And everyone says, shut up, David. <laughs> you little kid. You don't know about this stuff. And David convinces Saul that he, he will go. He will go and take on Goliath. And so what we see in David um, is he goes to take on Goliath. And, and one of my favorite verses in, in all of Scripture, it says that Goliath was, was in the valley and David ran to meet him. He ran to meet him. There was this picture of this little boy, 13 years old, slingshot on his hip running to take on this great champion that every man in his nation who could fight was afraid of. It was raw zeal, raw 
passion. Wisdom, maybe not. <laughs> Maturity, eh, I don't know. Depends on if you read Malcolm Gladwell or not. But he went with this passion and fervor and confidence in who God was, and he ran to meet him, and he beats Goliath, and he chops his head off and holds it up for all the nation to see. And in this, we see this, this part of David's story is this raw passion and zeal for the Lord. And he becomes a hero to Israel. And then they, they begin to make a procession back into uh, the city with Saul and David together. And, and the women come out singing. The cheerleaders just line the streets. And, and they're saying, Saul is great. He, thousands he's killed, Saul. But David, ten thousands. We love David. And, and in that moment, there's a seed of jealousy that's planted deep in Saul's heart. And he begins to hate David begins to hate him. And yet the favor of God is on David so much so that, that just the way it said that, that God had removed himself from Saul, Saul was tormented. In his, in his kingdom at night, he would be tormented and he couldn't sleep and he was filled with anxiety and fear and deep darkness. And the only thing that would bring him peace was when David would come into his courts and play his instrument and sing praises to the Lord. And as he spoke and as he sang who God was and the richness of his relationship with the Lord, there was a peace, a peace that covered Saul and he could rest. And in this part of David's journey, we see this intimacy, this deep intimacy with who God is and David's ability to sing that and to communicate it. So he's this, jealous, or this, this zealous, um, passionate kid who, who's got this intimacy with the Lord and knows who God is and is able to sing his praises. And yet Saul stays jealous so much so, he hates David so much that he decides to kill him. And this begins a manhunt where David goes on the run. For four years, David is on the run from Saul. Saul gathers an army and chases after David. And David is run off like a wild animal into the wilderness. And guys, remember, this, is not, this was not disobedience. Uh, this was not punishment. David had been walking with the Lord intimately. And yet he is run off into the wilderness. And in this season of David's life, he experiences loneliness and fear and um, uh, uh, separation from, from God, questioning, a doubt. Uh, did I know you, God? Where are you? That was a season of David's life. And, and he begins to write these psalms, which so many of the psalms of what we have now are David's heart just crying out to the Lord. Where are you, God? My enemies surround me. And he always finishes saying, I know, I know you are with me. I know that you are sovereign. I know you are great and I know you are good. Rescue me, Lord. And in this season of David's story, we see this, the health, like that emotional health that we talked about. Like, I'm afraid, I'm hurt, I'm alone, I don't know where you are, I, I doubt sometimes if you even hear me. God, rescue me. 
This part of David's story is filled with this rich emotional health, just crying out, giving words to what he's feeling to the Lord, inviting God there to meet him. And during this chase, these four years that he's on the run, there are times, there, there, there are times that David has an opportunity to kill Saul. There's, there's a time where he sneaks into the camp where Saul is sleeping with one of his men. Saul's army all around. They sneak in, and David is literally standing over Saul, who has been hunting him down, just dragging his name through the mud, trying to kill him, and David is standing over him. And, and his partner says to David, the Lord has delivered Saul into your hands. Kill him and take your rightful place as king. Do it. And David looks at Saul. He says, who am I? What right do I have to come against God's anointed? It is not my place. And he walks away. And in this portion of David's story, we see the character, the devotion to, to God, not to the kingship that he was promised, uh, not to any authority that was coming his way, not even to the men that were fighting with him, this character and devotion to the Lord. David is growing in the Lord in all of these ways. Finally, David spends four years in exile in a town called Ziglag, where he begins to assemble men, an army of his own, and become a town, a little, a little kingship of his own. Until Saul finally dies, and word comes to David, and the people call him in, and he is finally, 15 years later, he's finally made king over Israel. And in this process of David's growth, you could say it's, it's trending upward. It's got a positive trend for all you analysts out there. He, is, he starts in this zealous place, passionate place for God. And, and then he, he steps into deep intimacy with the Lord. And he grows in, in maturity and emotional health and, and wisdom and learns how to lead other people. And so when he takes this place of kingship, he is standing. He, he has been um, saturated in the Lord. Every part of him. And he steps into his, his kingship. And it's good. And the first thing David does when he becomes king is he goes to reclaim the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box um, that was the only place in all of human, uh, in this time of human history, was the only place where the Spirit of God dwelt. There was no temple. The, the Holy Spirit had not been released. That came when Jesus, uh, before he ascended to heaven, said, I'm sending a helper to you in Acts chapter 2. And then the, the Holy Spirit comes on the church. That hadn't happened yet. This was the only place where the Spirit of God dwelt. And David's first thing said, we have to have that. That must be in our kingdom. And what David's trying to do is reestablish Israel's connection to God. Israel's relationship with the Lord. 
And so they go, and, and, and this is 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm not going to read through it because we don't have time. But follow along with me. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 2 says this. He and all his men went to um, Balah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. It's where the Spirit of God dwelt. This was the only existing place of God's Spirit at the time. So it makes sense that Dave, David wanted to bring the ark back into its rightful place. It was very wise, very mature of David to do that. We see David's character and devotion as king. He knows the right thing to do. So he goes and reclaims the ark. But after David gets the ark, there's a disconnect. Something disconnects. David been walking in this maturity, growing in the Lord, learning how to be king, uh, intimate with God, crying out to him, knows the Lord, and gets to this place where he's bringing the ark and there's a disconnect. David says, take the ark and put it on this cart, pull it with the oxen, and let's get it up to the city. And we'll celebrate. And so his men do just that. They put it on the cart and they begin to pull, pull it towards the city. And then something terrible happens. It's verse 6 and 7. When they had come to the fleshy, uh, threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who was one of David's men, reached out to hold the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled and the Lord's anger burned because of this irreverent act. It burned against Uzzah. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. So what's happening here? David says, let's get the ark up to, uh, up to the city. And they, they make a processional. They get it set up. They're walking. The ox stumbles, and Uzzah, one of David's servants, reaches out to steady the ark. And, and God, God's vengeance burns against Uzzah. Why? God had given very specific instructions to Israel on, on how the ark should be held, how it should be moved. And essentially what David was saying as he set this whole scene up was, I got this. I'm king. I know who God is. Let's get the ark and let's get it up into the city. And he disregarded all that God had commanded for the people to do. And you can, I know when I've read this story, I thought, isn't that harsh? <laughs> I mean, poor Uzzah. He's just trying to hold the thing. And, and here's, here's, here's the problem. This was, when we talk about a fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of the Lord, this was the only dwelling place of God's spirit at this time. And when Uzzah, one of the commentators put it this way, when Uzzah reached out, to steady the ark. He was essentially saying, I will hold up God. God, I got you. Let me help you. And God's response, rightly, is, who do you think you are? Who is man that he would hold up the Lord? And it says that David grows angry. 
And I don't think it's angry at God. David's angry at himself. He knows better. He knows who he's dealing with. And Uzzah's death is on his hands. And then it says that David becomes afraid. He becomes afraid of God, even to the point he says, how will the ark come to me? How can this be? How can it happen? God is too good. I am not. And guys, there's a, there's a healthy place for that for us. We live in a day, an age, in a city, in a place that doesn't fear much, much of anything, much, much less the Lord. And we have to know and realize, believe the Lord is, is speaking to us, to me today. Don't forget who you're dealing with, that I am holy, that I am all-powerful. Read through the end of Job, <laughs> where Job <laughs> begins to question God. And God says, boy, sit down. Let me tell you something. <laughs> who tells the wind where to go? Who holds the heavens and earth together? We need to remember who we're dealing with. And David has lost sight of that. And David, so in his fear, he puts the ark away into a, another man's house. He has it delivered to Obed-Edom, a man uh, who was probably nearby. Can you imagine getting that delivery? I have a package that just smote a man up the street. <laughs> Where would you like it? So David stores it away with Obed-Edom, and he goes and uh, goes back to the city. He's just remorseful and, and afraid. And, um, and then this is, what, this is who God is. This is what happens. David gets word about what's happening at Obed's house. <laughs> says he's prospering. He and all of his family are flourishing. Everything he owns is being blessed because of the presence of the living God in his home. And I believe in that moment, David is reminded. <laughs> he had become this mature, wise king, had a whole nation behind him, really hadn't made too many mistakes along the way, was just walking in the favor of the Lord, and, and, and there's this hiccup. He's terrified and afraid, and he backs away, and then these reports come to him from Obed's house. Oh, God is blessing them. Oh, God is so good. You should see what's happening with their kids, uh, with their crops. I mean, everything Obed is doing is just going crazy right now. And David is just reminded of the character of God. That's the grace of God, you guys. <laughs> That's the grace of God. When we mess up, he doesn't shut us out into the darkness. He reminds us. He's our comforter. And David is, is filled again with this new passion and zeal for the Lord. And so he, he gathers his men together and says, let's do this right. Let's do this right. Let's do this the way God taught us to do it. So he gets the Levite priests, and he goes down, and they, and they get the poles, and they set it up. And, and every six paces, they make a sacrifice to the Lord. And at the front of this procession into the city is King David. And check out what he is doing. <laughs> Samuel 6, verses 15, 14 and 15, says, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. 
while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. The king, this wise ruler, this mature man of God is dancing in his underwear in front of this procession with everything that he has. He's lost in the love of God. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. To close the story, David enters his own house after getting the ark into the city, and he's met by his wife, Mikhail, which I probably pronounced wrong, but whatever, who is Saul's daughter, married to David. And this is what she says. As he walks in the door from a long day, she meets him and says, what an embarrassment you are. You should be ashamed of yourself. The king, some king you are. And David's reply is just drop the mic worthy. <laughs> he says, remember, I'm the one God chose, not your father. And you ain't seen nothing yet. More undignified. You think this is undignified? More undignified than this will I become. We see this story and this picture of David. Um, it should stir in us something that says we want all of it. We want to be all of it. We want to be that, that zealous, passionate, young David. And we know we will go through desert times where we cry out to the Lord. We want wisdom in how to do the things God has created us to do. We want all of it. It's not a give or take, not one or the other. This is not, you guys, don't email me this week saying, so you're saying we need to be more charismatic. So you're saying we need to throw our hands up and dance in the aisles. Maybe. I'm willing to say, yeah, maybe. That's what God tells you to do. It's not about, though, swinging to one side. Or we need to be more fundamental or we, whatever. It's about living in this fullness of who God made us to be, guys. That we can be passionate we can be mature and wise, all the same, all together. Um, there's several people that have been coming into the church office lately and just saying, um, man, I want to be with Jesus the way I was when I first became a Christian. Why can't I? I was so on fire, and I just felt so passionate, and I just heard from the Lord. <clears throat> Why can't it be like that? I want to go back to that. And, um, and I understand that sentiment. I do. I really, really do. But I want you to think uh, about this. Um, if you are going through a dry season, if you're walking in a place with the Lord where uh, you are struggling with doubt, uh, where you feel lonely, um, where you're questioning where God is, I want to challenge you and say that maybe you're in the healthiest place you've ever been. 
That is a necessary place to walk when we walk with the Lord. Experiencing this, uh, you might be in just the place that God means for you to be right now. So, so don't run back. Don't go, go running backwards saying, I want it to be like it was back then. I want to have the relationship with Jesus that I did back then. And let me explain to you why. Um, let's talk about puppies. <laughs> okay. Everybody likes puppies. In fact, if you don't like puppies, there's definitely something wrong with you. <clears throat> so puppies, they're cute, they're cuddly, they have the puppy breath and everything. And, and when you come home, when you have a puppy in your house, if you ever owned a puppy, you probably experienced this. When you own a puppy, the minute you walk in the door, they are ecstatic to see you. And they go wild and jump and all these things. And they get so excited, they pee the floor. Right? This happens. And it's, oh, that's cute. That's cute for a little while. Now, can you imagine, as you own that dog the rest of your life, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, every time you open the door, dog pees on the floor. Not so cute. Right? And they don't do that. They mature. They grow, grow out of it. Now, I'm not calling you a wet pee dog puppy, all right? I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there's a difference between pure fervor, right, and being excited. The dog's just as happy to see you get home when it's older. It just doesn't pee the floor. It grows. It matures. Fervor in and of itself is not what God desires, just like wisdom in and of itself is not what God desires. He desires all of you. All of you. And all that we have. And all that we will be. All of it. So what does it look like to, to live a life with God that is full of passion, yet marinated in maturity and wisdom health and confidence in the, all of those things. To be honest, you guys, I've been walking with the Lord basically my entire life, and I'm still learning. <laughs> but I had an experience this last week that taught me a little bit deeper, I think, of what that might look like. Um, on Tuesday, July 1st, Noel and I celebrated 14 years of being married to each other. And uh, thank you, that was very exciting. And some dear friends in the church had watched our girls on the weekend, uh, so we had kind of our celebration of uh, the anniversary on the weekend. So Tuesday night, July 1st, it's our 14-year day anniversary, and uh, I come home, no plans. We're just going to have dinner and be home as a family, no plans. And so I walk in, and Noelle's making just an awesome meal. She's just such a good good cook, and that's like one of her love languages. That's why I'm always overweight, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I will stay this way so I can eat her food. And so she's making this meal, and the kids are just kind of running around and everything. So I, I drop my stuff and come into the kitchen, and, and I don't know, I had this good idea. I have these like once every year. Um, 
and I put on the song that we, our first dance at our wedding. Uh, I turned Ribbons in the Sky by Stevie Wonder. Go get it. So good. I put on the song, and it's this slow piano song about this enduring love, and, um, and I take Noelle's hand, and she's got an apron on, and no shoes, like stuff all over her. Uh, there's stuff burning on the stove, uh, and we're slow dancing in our kitchen uh, to Ribbons in the Sky by Stevie Wonder, and we're singing the song, the words to each other, and Noelle's crying, and we're having like this really deep, like emotional, really powerful moment. I won't forget that moment. That was like a real catalyst moment. Um, and, and it was chaos all around. I mean, the, Maggie's like, I want to be in the middle and like, <laughs> you know, pulling and the kids are fighting and like stuff smoking. And, but like in that moment, it was just, just us. And uh, the next morning, we were up doing our reading and the kids were still asleep. And Noel said, Dave, in that moment where we were dancing in the kitchen last night, I had a deeper, um, more mature, more passionate love for you than I even did on our wedding day. And that's, that might sound crazy, um, but it could mean one of two things. It could mean, one, that it's taken her 14 years to warm up to me, <laughs> so I'm willing to concede to. It's possible. Or it could mean um, that our love in our marriage has traversed um, some very beautiful and very terrible terrain in the 14 years we've been together. Uh, we've experienced just unbridled joy uh, and laughter, and we've cried ourselves to sleep some nights uh, in absolute grief. We've both lost parents. Along the way, uh, experienced miscarriages along the way. Um, we've done and said things to each other that have left lasting scars in our marriage. Um, we've experienced deep forgiveness and grace in one another. Um, our love is no longer a, a pool, it's like this deep cavernous lake. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. And people talk about the honeymoon stage. <laughs> oh, the honeymoon is over, or you're in the honeymoon stage. Don't worry, it'll end, uh, you know. Um, trying to, like, poo-poo you and stuff. <laughs> um, and here's the truth. Um, the honeymoon stage does end, and that's good. And it's right. Noel and I had a great honeymoon. It was wonderful. But I wouldn't want to go back. Well, I would want to go back to Kauai, and I would want my 23-year-old body back. <laughs> but besides that, I wouldn't want to go back to who we were. I wouldn't want to go back to what our relationship was on our honeymoon. We've come a long way. And we have a deep, um, enduring, abiding love. And God uses... Um, the marriage metaphor throughout scripture, I think to teach us a bit about this, that there's something to enduring, there's something to the way zeal and passion look in the mature believer that's different than the new believer, and that's good. 
It's okay. Wherever you are in that stage, it's all right. Continue enduring with the Lord. I want you just to imagine Jesus with you, holding you close, intimately. And when you look into the face of Jesus, you see the scars of the thorns that he bore. You see the pain that he had lived through for us, all because of his enduring love for us. And when Jesus looks at you, he sees your brokenness and he sees your scars and your wrinkles from a life well lived and he delights in you. And it's good. And it's right. I want to finish where we started um, in Isaiah chapter 40 because I think it's uh, God's encouragement to us in how to walk these things out, to live a mature, abundant, zealous, passionate, confident life in God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29 through 31 is what we started with. I'll read it again. Um, It says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, it's also translated those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Um, This passage is so overplayed. Uh, It becomes one of those passages that we just swallow. We don't chew. We hear it so often. Um, uh, The high school I went to, Santa Fe Christian High in San Diego, um, that we were the Eagles, and this was every, it was plastered everywhere, and I had no clue what they were talking about. (laughs) And I began to study it, and and, and this is where we're going to end. I hope this encourages you. For 39 chapters, chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah, God blasts Israel, (laughs) Reminds them of their sin and their rebellion. Reminds them of his anger. Puts a good, healthy fear in Israel. So much so that they get to the point in chapter 40, they say, Can, will God listen to us anymore? I mean, we have been so wretched. Does he even hear us? And God comes with chapter 40. 39 chapters of just, just giving it to him. Rightly. In chapter 40, he comes in with this gentle hand, and he says, take heart. Earlier in chapter 40, he says, your, your sin will be paid for twice over, meaning not only will you be released from the consequence of your sin as you trust in me, but you will be accepted into my personhood. You will be near to me. This is like a prisoner who gets released from jail, right? Uh, uh, they, they forgive his sentence. Uh, he doesn't have to live out the last 20 years of his sentence, and he is released. And that's great. But he's not going to find a job. No one's going to take him in, right? Uh, he's got no place to go. God, God says, no, this is a double portion. 
I, I take care of this double. I release you, and then I, I bring you back in. I accept you. And then uh, he ends with uh, uh, the verses we just read. And to me, this seems anticlimactic. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It seems like it should go the other way, right? Like a plane taking off. Like you walk until you get into a run, and then you run until you soar and you take off. That's kind of the way we live our life, right? (laughs) Baby steps, grow a little bit, fly. But in this, God is teaching us something. That there are times in your life with the Lord. Hear this, guys. If you didn't hear anything else, listen to this. There are times in your life and your walk with the Lord that you will fly, that you will feel so connected to God, you will feel so zealous and passionate for him, your feet won't even be touching the ground. There will be times. And then there will be times where you will, where, where you will grind it out, where you will sweat, and you will run with everything you can muster in your relationship with God, and you will pour yourself into it. There are times that that you will have that. But by and large, a fervent, mature, confident walk with Jesus is one step in front of the other. It is a patient, hopeful walk with the Lord. And this is where we are as a church. We believe that we would walk one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, trusting in the Lord expectantly. What does a mature, zealous Christian look like? It is one that waits patiently on the Lord, that trusts restfully in the Lord, that hopes expectantly in the Lord. Dick Lucas, who's a very mature, awesome, wise pastor, said the evidence of a mature, everyday Christian is the endurance to walk step by step. I should have put that on the screen. The evidence of a mature, everyday Christian is the endurance to walk step by step. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, you are so patient with us, God. I just get the picture, Lord, of, of a father walking with his, his child, and um, I even think about my own kids, Lord. We just walk around the block, and in that walk, there are times the kids run way ahead of me, foolishly. There are times they pout and drag their feet way behind me. There are times they trip and fall and cry. And you are that good father, Lord, that just takes us by the hand. 
and faithfully walks with us, God. God, would that, would the knowledge of that, Lord God, would the understanding of that first, God, break into our heart and our mind to see you that way? And then when it does, God, would it produce in us, Lord, a passion for your name? God, would it produce in us a desire to sing to you and be near to you, Lord God, and, and at the same time to walk steadily, endure with you, Lord? God, I believe we're at this pivotal place as a church. Would you teach us, God, what this means? every day to live and walk with you, Jesus. We love you, God. We love you. God, we love you. Bless your name. Amen.